This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, some of you have already obviously noted I uh, cut my hair recently. All of them. Really, really, really short. And I've been wanting to do this for the past couple of years, to be honest. I, I did it for the first time a week after we got married. Yeah, that was the right laugh. I bicked it. I razored it. And I, I thought that I'd be sneaky. I was, I was getting ready to go to a flag football game as Jill was coming home from work, and I put a bandana on thinking I would cover it. And if you've ever cut your hair at home, at best you get 95% of the hair out of the sink, never 100%. So I don't know how I thought I was going to hide it from her. But I, I've been wanting to do it for the past couple of years. And after the pandemic started and we started streaming services for the first time, two things stood out. Remember, I used to sit right here, but I don't sit there anymore. And here's why. Some of you guys have watched the live stream at home. You know why, don't you? I don't even need to tell you. And like it was glaring, this bald spot in the back of the YouTube thing. It was like I had a halo. I wasn't holy. I was just going bald. And then the other thing I noticed is that when I would pray up here at the pulpit and I'd bow my head, like it was like this beaming light right at the camera. And I was like, I'm ready to throw in the white towel. I'm done. I give up. I'm like, you know, 24 already and going bald. And like, bless your hearts, and not in the southern way, like some of you have been incredibly supportive of my life decision. Some of you have been incredibly supportive, especially my balding brothers. Can I get an amen, balding brothers? (laughs) That was awkward. Well, one of my balding brothers over here gave me a bump. Another one of my balding brothers said, uh, I'm really going to be proud of this one. He said, it's kind of like your rugged monk look, Ash. I liked it, but others of you, those of you that didn't give the amen, um, some of you have given me kind of that disappointed parent look. Like all of a sudden, I got a whole bunch of mamas and papas and aunties and uncles, it feels like, and, I, and you guys keep you asking me like, what did you do? Why, why would you do that? Did you, please, tell me you, please tell me you lost a bet. And then my favorite is like, you're going to grow it back, right? You recognize the mistake you made and you're going to correct it? And you know what goes through my head each and every time? Judge not my haircut that your haircut be not judged. <laughs> and you know, that's kind of what we do with this verse, isn't it? Like Matthew 7, 1, it's got to be one of the most misunderstood and, and misquoted verses in all of Scripture. And we do that, though, don't we? We just we throw it out at anyone whenever they disagree with what we think or what we believe when they disagree with the choices that we've made, as incredible as they are. We throw it at people when they they question the way we've chosen to live our life. He's like, you can't judge me. You can't judge what I do. Judge not lest you be judged. Like, who do you think you are? You think you're God? And this morning, as we continue to learn to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to set aside what we think Jesus says in this passage and listen to what he actually says. I want us to hear the words of Jesus as we see into the heart of Jesus and see why Jesus actually says and what he means when he says, judge not. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, Judge Not. So if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles and let's turn in them to the New Testament book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 7, the first five verses this morning. 
And like so much of the Sermon on the Mount, this passage is just a continued working out of the great commandment of loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's helping each other to grow to be more like Jesus by loving like Jesus. But in this passage, Jesus, he's going to show how we're prone to do the exact opposite of that. How we're prone to hold others down rather than helping them grow because we're arrogantly judging them rather than humbly loving them. And in this passage, Jesus, he begins by giving us a command. And then he's going to give us two questions that help us to reflect on his command, to reveal the the hypocrisy that exists in our judgmental heart. And then third, he's going to give us the proper response to his command. And so let's begin here in verse 1. He, he, he begins with his command. Jesus, he says, judge not. And he follows his command with a warning. He says, judge not that you be not judged. And like, I, when a word shows up twice in a small sentence like that, we should probably understand. It's like, what's that actually mean? I mean, does it mean that uh, you have free reign to judge this incredible haircut that I have or not? Like, what's the deal? Can we judge the choices that others make, the way they live their life or not? So in order to properly understand the command to judge not, we need to properly understand the word judge. And just like our English word has a wide variety of meanings, so does the original Greek word. It can uh, have meanings ranging from a a legal meaning, meaning to to hand down a verdict, uh, but also more of a logical meaning, to come to a, a conclusion, to form an opinion. And when we got a lot of possible answers, what I taught my boys to do in, in taking a test is if you're not sure of the, the right answer, at least go through and eliminate all the wrong answers. And so before we dig in, let's look at what judge not is not. Let's eliminate some wrong answers. And there's four things here I want to point out. Number one, judge not is not ignorance of sin. Right? It's not ignorance of sin. It's not thinking that sin's not occurring, that it doesn't exist. It's, but we do that. And we get so consumed with our own lives that we just, we fail to see the sin that exists in the lives of others because we're not even looking, right? We're, we're, we're oblivious. We're all walking around with, with blinders on, not paying attention to others in our lives. But instead, Scripture's called us to, to live in community. It's called us to open our lives up to one another, to, to bear one another's burdens, Jesus, in Luke 17, 3, he he says, pay attention to yourselves, pay pay attention to each other, so that if if a brother sins, if another follower sins, you can rebuke him, you can confront his sin. And so judge not is not ignoring the lives of others, it's not being ignorant or oblivious to the sin of others. But the second, judge not is not tolerance of sin. Judge not is not tolerance of sin. It's not thinking that it's not my place to judge what is true for you. It's not thinking that that truth is relative, and so you define your own truth, I'll define mine. You have your version of right and wrong, I'll have mine. And that's exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. Paul, he writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5.1 saying, It's been reported that there's sexual immorality being tolerated among you, the kind not even tolerated by the pagans. Right? They were embracing as truth what God had clearly defined as sin. And God's the one that gets to define truth, isn't he? The psalmist in Psalm 119 declared the sum of God's word to be truth. 
Jesus in, in John 14, 6 declared himself as the living word to be the singular source of truth, the singular way and source of eternal life. And, and that's why in just a few verses, in verse 15, Jesus, he tells his disciples to beware of false prophets, those who were teaching contrary to the truth of God's word. Because judge not is not tolerating sin and treating it as truth, because God alone defines truth. Number three, judge not is not indifference towards sin. Right? It's not indifference towards sin, thinking that, um, you know what, that sin is just not that bad. It's just, it's just a little sin. It's just a baby sin. Besides, right, doesn't Scripture say love covers a multitude of sins? It just erases it like it wasn't even there. And so we, we excuse sin. We, we think, you know what, eventually they're going to acknowledge it. Eventually they'll apologize for it and it'll be okay, right? No harm, no foul, nobody hurt. And it's that abuse of grace in the face of sin that has caused countless people to be hurt, countless people to be abused by the excused sin of others. And that's why Paul, he says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And again, he says, what then? Are we, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. And he's saying here that we need to take sin as seriously as God does. And that means that judge not, is not, and cannot be indifference toward and excusing sin. But then number four, judge not is not cowardice towards sin either. Right? Judge not is not cowardice towards sin. It's not thinking, you know, it's not my place. I'm overstepping my bounds. And then rather than speaking up and confronting sin, we remain silent failing to, to confront sin and allowing it to remain hidden in the dark. And that's not loving. Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It does not rejoice in sin, but rejoices with truth, bringing that sin into light. But let's acknowledge here, let's be honest with ourselves, just how difficult it is to confront the sin of another, isn't it? It's one of those easier said than done things. Take, for example, it's clear when someone is speeding, right? Our, we live on a 25-mile-an-hour road that people think is Interstate 90 most days. And so I've gotten quite attuned to knowing almost exactly what 25 is and what 26 is. And I will drive 25 down the road if you are on my bumper. Uh, one of those, you know, I'm judging the person behind me very much so. But uh, it's clear if someone's speeding, if someone's breaking the law, the, the, the officer can tell with his radar gun. It is clear. But it's not always clear if someone's sinning and breaking God's law. And the reason is because we rarely have a complete picture. We rarely have all the evidence. We, we can only go off what we see and know and hear to be true. And so then we start to second-guess ourselves. We start to wonder if... Is, is it sin or not? I, I'm, I'm not certain. I'm not certain if I should confront it because I don't know if, if it's sin. And I think we've all seen situations where sin has been confronted that was actually non-existent and where the possibility of sin was not confronted where it did exist. And I guess what I need us to know is we're going to get that wrong sometimes, aren't we? I think we've probably all gotten it wrong, or someone's gotten it wrong with us. 
we're going to get it wrong because there's no simple answer to this. And the less clear and certain a situation is, the more prayer and wisdom and discernment we need. And so when we find ourselves in those situations, let's ask more questions and make fewer assumptions. Amen? Let's ask more questions and make fewer assumptions. Let's always, 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 always remember that when we share the truth, we share it in what? We share the truth in love. And so when Jesus says judge not, he's not calling us to ignore sin, to tolerate or excuse the sin of others. He's not, he's not saying that we shouldn't determine right from wrong, that we shouldn't think critically uh, to discern truth from lie, or that we should never confront sin. Because God, he calls us to do those very things in Scripture. Instead, what we see here is a command not to usurp the role of God by eternally condemning others for their sin. Does that make sense? We are not God. And so just as we do not legislate God's law, determining what is and what is not sin, God does that. We are not to eternally judge others for their sin. God alone does that. Because as one commentator noted, absolute justice demands absolute knowledge. And God alone has all the evidence, doesn't he? God alone is able to pierce into our heart to see what cannot be seen, to hear what has not even been spoken. And as we're going to see in a bit in verse 5, while we should lovingly and humbly confront someone who is not faithfully following the way of Jesus, it is not our place to call their eternal salvation into question. It is not our verdict to hand down, it is God's. And so a couple of phrases that I'm sure we've all said, I'm sure we've all heard, here's a couple of phrases we should not be saying. We should not be saying things like, clearly that person's not a Christian because of what they believe. Clearly they're not a Christian because of how they voted. That's not our place. Clearly that person's going to burn in hell for what they've done. That is not our place. While we are created in the image of God, we are not God. We are God's children. We are God's creation. It is not our place to judge. It is our place to love. It is our place to pray. It is our place to help them grow to be more like Jesus. It is our place to help them faithfully follow Jesus. It is not our place to condemn them to hell. Yet so often that's exactly what we do. Creation usurps the role of the Creator. And we, we put on the robe and we sit on the bench and we take on the role of judge, jury, and executioner all in one. And when we do that, typically it manifests itself in the way that we treat others, the way that we interact with others, the way we speak to and about others, typically in, in one of three ways. I'm sure there's more, but here's three big ones. Number one, it manifests itself in a critical spirit, doesn't it? It manifests itself in a critical spirit. Some people and we all either know them or are them, uh, have this knack of finding something wrong with like everything, right? They're that friend that when you invite them over to your house, you're, you're terrified because they're gonna give you a list of like 15 home improvement projects, thinking that you don't know them, thinking that like you didn't know your sink was backed up and it's been backed up for the last six months, but thanks for telling me anyway. We all got that friend. And they're going to look until they find something wrong. They, they see the picture on your wall that's crooked, and they let you know it. 
They see that you cut your hair and it looks terrible. They're wrong, but they let you know it. It's kind of a test this morning to see who had that critical spirit with my haircut. And what I tell y'all, just wait a few minutes. You'll see which bucket you fit into. I love you. But then when they do that, you ever notice, like, I pointed this out to you. I pointed out how terrible that haircut is. I pointed out how crooked your picture is. I pointed out how clogged your sink is. You know what they expect then? They expect you to thank them, don't they? Like, I've done you a favor. My critical spirit is a spiritual gift, they almost feel. But for real, like, some are just critical of everything that does not perfectly align with their view of the world and that is not done the way that they would have had it done. I don't like that paint color. I don't like your carpet choice. And like, hear me say, a critical spirit is not helping anyone grow to be like Jesus, is it? It's not helping anyone grow. In fact, it's pushing people away. What it's doing is it's building yourself up by pushing others down. But that's one of the ways in which it manifests itself. The second is in, is in assuming motives. Right? We assume the motives of others. We, we take the info that we have, and we're really good at filling in the blanks, don't we? And sometimes we take like two dots, and we draw a straight line between them. And sometimes, you ever notice that we do one of these to connect our dots between people? We fill in the blanks with the craziest stories. We're assuming the why behind the what. Rather than asking why they did what they did, and clearly assuming it was wrong, we assume And you notice that when we assume, we typically assume the worst of others. That's why we have this phrase, assume the best and ask the hard questions, right? Seek clarity before you criticize. Seek to understand. But judgment not only manifests itself in the way that we speak to others, but I think it also manifests itself in the way that we speak about others in spreading gossip, right? That's the third manifestation, spreading gossip, Rather than speaking to the person, we speak to everyone but the person, about the person. And that is gossip. And that, the Bible says, is sin. And we have been called to treat each other as fellow image bearers, aren't we? Fellow image bearers, regardless of the sin they've committed, regardless of the sin we think they might have committed. A a survivor of sexual abuse from within the church, she tweeted this week, saying there's a stark difference between speaking truth to admonish, meaning to confront sin and help someone grow out of love, and speaking truth to condemn. It's less about the what and more about the why, isn't it? In Matthew 22, Jesus didn't command us to condemn our neighbor. No, he commanded us to do what? Love our neighbor. In John 13, Jesus didn't say that the world would know us by our constant criticism of each other and our hot takes on Facebook. No, he said the world would know us by our love for each other. Jesus, he follows his command to judge not with a warning that when you judge others on behalf of God, when you play the role of God, you will be judged by God. And he goes on to explain this in that the way that you judge others is the same way God will judge you. He says in verse 2, he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure, the amount, the way in which you use it, it will be measured to you. In chapter 6, Jesus said that if you withhold forgiveness, God will withhold forgiveness. And here he's saying that if you condemn others, God will condemn you. 
Because as John Stott noted in his commentary on this passage, not only are we not the judge, not only are we not God, we are among the judged, aren't we? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us, you, me, everyone here, everyone at home. And our state of fallen humanity should shape our humility, shouldn't it? It should shape our humility. We should be shaped by the words of Jesus. As he said, blessed are the meek and merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit and the peacemakers. And that should shape the way in which we treat others, loving others, not judging, confronting sin, not condemning for their sin, helping them faithfully follow the way of Jesus, especially when they strayed from the way of Jesus. That's what helping each other grow to be more like Jesus looks like. That's what loving like Jesus looks like. And he goes on to offer an illustration here with two questions that I think help us reflect on his command. Read verses 3 and 4 here with me. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Jesus, remember, he was, he was raised by a carpenter, wasn't he? Uh, likely he became a carpenter. And so no wonder here he is using a carpentry illustration. It's like, it's like me using my 842nd Iowa and farming illustration. You guys know more about Iowa than most of the people in Iowa do. But we use what's familiar to us, and that's what Jesus does here. But when he asks this question, it's important to see Jesus is not asking a rhetorical question. He's asking a reflective question. And that's a significant difference. Jesus expects us to think about this question and to answer this question, even if not out loud, in a heart to be able to answer it. And so let's read this question in verse 3 again. He starts with a why question. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why is that? You notice the sin of others. It's obvious. But why don't you notice the sin in your own eye? Why is that less obvious? Why don't you notice that log in your eye? I mean, let's be honest, like, you get the tiniest little speck of dust in your eye, you notice it. How are you not going to notice a log? It's not a rhetorical question, but a reflective question that he wants to think about. And I think the answer fits into one of four buckets, and I want you to see how many of these, which of these you might fit into. The first, the first bucket is that sometimes we are just simply naive to our sin. We're naive to our sin. We, we didn't realize that what we were doing was sin, we, we, we thought that that log in our eye was normal. We thought it was supposed to be there. But that's why it's so important that we continue to come back and spend time with God in His Word. That's why it is so important that we live in community with others, faithfully following Jesus together with others to, to help with that. But sometimes we're just naive. Number two, sometimes sin becomes natural, doesn't it? Like breathing. You sin without even realizing it. You, you've just grown so accustomed to that log in your eye, you forgot it was there. And the further away that we stray from God, the further from the, the way of Jesus we go, the more natural our sin begins to feel, doesn't it? We're naive, it becomes natural. And number three, sin becomes comfortable. It becomes comfortable and familiar, and we just don't really care anymore. Like, everything's fine. We're like that dog in the meme with the room burning. We're like, everything's fine. We're good. The log in my eye, it's not a big deal. I can take it out later. And we've adjusted to that habitual sin in our life, and it's become normative. 
It's become comfortable. And then number four, we become just outright rebellious at times. There's times where we don't believe that what we're doing is actually wrong. We don't believe it's sin. There is no more log in my eye. It's not actually a log. And just like the Pharisees, we are, we are lawyers looking for a legal loophole. We're looking for a way around. And so what do we do? We take God's word, right? We take it and we twist God's word to say what we want it to say to justify the way in which we're living our lives. And so I want to pause for a moment and reflect for a bit. And I want to ask, why is it you don't notice the log in your own eye? Not someone else's, your eye. Why is it you don't notice the log in your eye? What sin in your life are you naive to? What sin have you grown accustomed to? That you've become comfortable with or you found a legal loophole around to just justify? Why do you continue to ignore the log in your eye? The second question he asks is a how question. He asks in verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? Like, How can you confront someone else's sin without having ever addressed your own sin? Again, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a, a reflective question, one that I think reveals the uh, double standard that we hold others to. Holding others accountable to a standard that we don't hold ourselves accountable to. And I, I think this one, we can fit things into one of three buckets here. Number one, we think, I have my sin under control. Right? I've got my sin under control. I can manage my sin on my own. I've got this. And in our head, we know it's wrong. We know it's sin. And, and so we, we keep it hidden, don't we? We keep it in the dark. We don't want anyone else to know because I got this. I don't need your help. And so we keep it in the dark. We're afraid of bringing it into light. The, the problem with that strategy, though, is God hasn't called us to control our sin, but to kill our sin. Amen? He says, put to death the deeds of the body, Paul says. I heard a pastor one time describe it kind of like this. Uh, we are trying to tame and chain a wild beast that should be slain playing with fire, and we think we can handle it. And that is not humility, that is pride, that is arrogance. And what we have all seen time and time again is that given enough time, eventually you will be hurt, and you will hurt those you love. As the effects of your sin, they ripple, impacting every relationship you have. And they're not just a ripple, they're a tidal wave slamming into those that you love most. You will hurt others if you think you can control and manage your sin. But we do. Number two, we think I am more deserving of grace. Right? I'm more deserving of grace than they are. I recognize my sin. I know there's a log in my eye. I'm not going to hide that. But, but because of who I am, I'm a good person. Because of all the, the good I've done, right, that balances out that log. Do you see? You see how, what, do you remember what I did? I'll tell you what I did. Remember? And it balances out. In fact, in fact if anything, it, it's, it's greater than the log. Really, the log's not a big deal. Because of what I've done, I am more deserving of grace. And we give ourselves this like get out of jail free card, don't we? 
We get ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card, we pass go, and we collect our $200, and we keep on going. And what's interesting about this one, do you ever notice that the grace that we extend to others is not the same, is it? You ever notice how much more empathetic we are towards those who struggle with the same sin as you? Much more empathetic. We're extending grace whose specks resemble your log. But then number three, we flat out think their sin's worse than ours, all right? We think their sin is worse than mine, and we start comparing. I stole some supplies from work, but you know what? I never robbed a bank. Yeah, I fudged on my taxes a bit, but it's not like I lied to Congress. You know, I, I looked at porn last night, but I never cheated on my spouse. I didn't do anything. Man, aren't those the exact misunderstandings Jesus got done, just got done confronting in chapter 5? And you know where we're really great at this? Where we excel at this? It's with sexual sin. Because what we tend to do is we tend to... Um, we don't do this. We do it the other way. Here we go. Let's go about it this way. Rather than elevating what God desires... And what God desires is for this incredible gift of sex to be enjoyed by a husband and wife within the context of the covenant marriage. God has given us the gift of sex and the gift of marriage in which to enjoy it. Rather than elevating what God desires and acknowledging everything else outside of that as sin, what we do is we've elevated certain sexual sins above others, haven't we? And some sexual sins are permissible. They're okay. They're not that bad. They're like a one or a two on the scale. But then we got some others that are like a nine or a ten on the scale. Some sins are permissible. Other sexual sins are condemnable. And what that does is that leads to shaming those who struggle with certain sins and covering up the sins of others. And what we see time and time again is that when we cover up sin, typically we protect the one who has sinned at the expense of the one who has been sinned against. Further victimizing the victim. And the cover-up of sexual sin and abuse within the, the church, the global church, it, it is an epidemic. It, it grieves God. And not only has the church failed to acknowledge the log in her own eye, she goes around trying to cover it up with mascara. And man, the world sees, don't they? They see. So hear me, judge not does not mean cover up. Judge not does not mean cover up. Leave no sin in the dark, including your own. And so I want us to again reflect for a moment on Jesus' question. How is this possible for you? What lie do you believe that enables you to address the sin in someone else's life while failing to acknowledge your own sin? What leads you to develop this self-righteous superiority and apply this double standard holding someone else accountable to something you don't hold yourself accountable to? I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer answers this question quite well in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, But if we are on the lookout for evil in others... Our real motive is obviously to justify ourselves. For we are seeking to escape punishment for our sins by passing judgment on others. We are trying to claim for ourselves a special privilege which we deny to others. 
And that is what we do when we judge. In short, we think too highly of ourselves and too little of our sin, don't we? We think we are, we are more worthy, we think we are more deserving, and thereby devaluing the humanity of others who are also created in the image of God. And Jesus, he confronts the, our judgmental hearts. He confronts our double standards in verse 5, saying, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. You, you, you people whose, whose behaviors don't align with your beliefs. I read that and I'm reminded of the story of, of the prophet Nathan and, and King David from, from 2 Samuel 12. And if you remember before this story, uh, David, he was hanging out on his rooftop and he, and he saw someone and he's like, I got to have that. And so he brought her over and come to find out it's his best friend's wife. And he slept with her and she was pregnant. And so David, in, in seeking to keep his sin hidden, keep it in the dark, he had his best friend, he killed his BFF. He had him sent to war, put on the front lines, had him killed to cover up his sin. And he thought he got away with it. He thought he was good. I think he probably thought all three of these things. And, and what happens is the prophet Nathan, he comes into David and he tells him a story. He invites him into the story. He tells him a story about two farmers, two ranchers, two shepherds, a, a rich one and a poor one. And the rich shepherd, the rich farmer, he, he had some friends over one night. And he wanted to put out this big spread, like a massive charcuterie board, right? And instead of like cutting up his own lambs for his charcuterie board, he, he sent somebody over to steal one of the poor guy's lambs. The guy doesn't have much, and he steals from him. And he's telling David this story, and you can see David, the rage in his face. He's, he's furious, and, and he says to Nathan, he says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan, he looks at David, and he says, You are the man. And I feel Jesus saying that to us here. Saying it out of love, for sure, but saying, you are that man, you are that woman, you are that person. And he goes on to say, he says, you hypocrite, first, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's an order to this. But what Jesus commands of us, it is incredibly hard, isn't it? And it requires an immense amount of humility. Because what Jesus is saying here is that we should confront the sin of others. But only after confronting our own sin. Does that make sense? If there's a big idea this morning, if there's one takeaway, I think it's, I think it's that. It's that we should confront each other's sin, but only after confronting our own sin. And that requires us to not simply acknowledge the log in our eye and say, yeah, it's there, I see it. Not to simply apologize for it, but repenting over our sin, removing the log, and feeling remorse over our sin, the, the presence of sin. Yet in that knowing that Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. 
Because what we know to be true is that where there is forgiveness, where there is repentance of sin, there is forgiveness of sin, isn't there? But not only that, where there is remorse, where there is repentance, there is hope. There is hope for reconciliation. There is hope for restoration. But none of that is possible if we simply acknowledge and apologize for our sin. It requires the remorse. It requires repentance. It requires us to not just acknowledge the long, but to pull that thing out. And you know what? It hurts. It hurts real bad. And so you might need a friend to come alongside you. I really wouldn't recommend going home and taking that log out on your own. Have a friend help you. Have a friend walk through this with you. And as you do it, know that where there is repentance of sin, there is forgiveness of sin. And know that Jesus, he didn't, Jesus didn't come and live a sinless life to only take on certain sins, did he? Jesus didn't shed his blood and die to atone for only some sins. No, he is the propitiation for our sins, for all of our sins, and not just ours, but for the sins of the whole world, the Apostle John says. He died for your sins, all of your sins, for mine and everyone out there. And he says that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he says, is not condemned. And I think some of us just need to be reminded of that today. Because you're going to pull that log out, and it's going to hurt, and you're going to feel the guilt, and you're going to feel the shame of all you've done. You're going to be reminded of the ripples that your sin has caused in the lives of those you love, the tidal wave that has slammed them. And in spite of all of that, there is forgiveness. Things will not probably look the same on the other side of forgiveness. There are consequences for sin, relational consequences, legal consequences. But there is forgiveness. And only after you have repented of your sin, only after you have removed the log out of your own eye, are you able to see into the lives of others more clearly. Only then are you able to go to that brother or sister, that follower of Christ, and not simply stand there and point out the log in their eye, but come alongside them, put your arm around them, and help them take the log out of their eye, to remove the speck out of their eye. Because what we know to be true is that we don't follow Jesus alone, do we? Now, we follow Jesus together as a family, as brothers and sisters united in Christ, forgiven by the blood of Christ. And so it is together that we listen to the words of Jesus. It is together that we learn to live out the way of Jesus. And it is together that we help each other grow to be more like Jesus by humbly loving each other like Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.